Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, paramotoring and fictional birds. First flight was terrifying because I'm self-trained. But once I got up there, it was craziest kind of feelings. I'm like, I'm literally flying underneath my own power. You're flying with a two-stroke dirt bike motor on your back. Anything can possibly go wrong depending on how you take care of it. It was like four degrees up there, freezing cold, completely dry, and just views I couldn't really explain. The most beautiful environment I've ever been in. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. I am so excited to say this because if nothing else, it is a personal accomplishment for me. We finally have a voicemail system set up. The number is 316-530-7719. I know that makes absolutely no sense and is not really memorable, but the system works. I think the voicemail message is set up if I did it correctly, but we would love to really make this show a lot more interactive. So we want to hear what you think about the show, if you have any topics that you want to suggest, what you think of the things that we talk about, the top fives, top five suggestions, whatever you have to say, we want to hear it legitimately. And our goal is to try and feature more and more of what you guys have to say on the show. So again, that amazingly easy to remember number, 316-530-7719. We will put a link or thing or whatever in the episode description. Hope you take time. Give us a call. Would love to meet you. So our first guest has a small seat, a dirt bike motor, and a large fan. And he has used that to fly higher than any other pilot of his kind in the world. This is paramotor pilot Chucky Wright. This looks scary. Is it scary? If you're scared of heights, yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. Looking at it from a complete outsider perspective, it looks like somebody on a small jump seat with a fan on their back. Yeah, that's to sum it up, that's the simplistic version of it. Is that really all it is, though? Like, that's that's really all it is? Or is there more to it that, like, look, this is more sophisticated and safer than what it looks like? Yeah, no, it's not just a, a fan strap to, like, a seat. There's... There's a lot of moving parts in there. There's a lot of safety features in there built in in case you were to crash. The way that the cage is constructed and all that kind of stuff. Crumble zones just like a car would have. Um, granted, if you fall from a certain height, you're just going to die. But like overall, it's, it's, it's a lot of engineering that went into the frames and the motors and the way that they operate. They're very reliable. How did you get started in this, basically? Three years ago is not when I started. Is when I started watching YouTube videos on people that flew these things that are called paramotors. And I was like, what the hell is this sport? And it seemed not scary, but like super cool, super surreal. Like you don't need any licensing or anything special of that nature. So I was like, okay, let me figure out more of this. Let me see what the cost is. So I'm like, the cost shied me away the first time because it was like 16, 15 grand for the kind of gear that I wanted to get in the sport with. You can get in cheaper, but it's a lot more risk involved because you're buying used gear. Anything used is always a potential for someone not taking care of it when they owned it. Um, but yeah, three years ago, I found out about it. Two year and seven or eight months ago was my first flight ever. So that's YouTube has basically got me in. Watching another pilot on YouTube is what got me entertained in the sport. What was that first flight like? First flight was terrifying because I'm self-trained. So most people go and they get taught. 
Yeah, I'm self-taught, which is completely legal. I spent probably, I'd say seven months watching videos, probably hundreds, a couple hundred hours of what to do and how to do it through instructors that teach schools and just, not, they're not teaching you how to do it. They're teaching how they, they're making videos on how they teach. So that's what I felt as if I went through multiple classes, just never got to put everything in my hands until I went out and bought my own gear. So I went out, bought my own gear, bought a kiting harness. I would go out. I only probably kited for three or five hours total over the course of like a month. And then I decided, you know, one day I'm like, okay, it cannot be that complicated. So I, I go out and uh, I grab the harness and I strap it on my back. I start it up. I, you know, do a couple test runs to see what it would kind of feel like running with the motor on my back and what the winds feel like. I'm like, okay, I'm confident I can do this. I set up for the last time. I went running. Um, I wasn't familiar with all the winds and all the logistics on that kind of stuff, airspaces and everything of that sort. So that was just kind of in the back corner still. Um, but flying wise, I knew how to get up and I knew how to get down to a certain aspect, but I'd never put the, the visual into physical movement with my body yet and how to actually do it. So I go and I get up first try. Thankfully, I ran a little bit. I got up there. I struggled to get in my seat. So I'm kind of just dangling by like my legs, like in the harness. Thankfully, I'm strapped in. But once I got up there, it was the craziest, not scariest, but like craziest kind of feelings. I'm like, I'm literally flying underneath my own power under something that I just bought. No license, no anything. And I'm just up here in the air. So it's kind of weird. Like now it's natural, but looking at the ground from up there um, was like, I first thought once I got off the ground, I'm like, I have to come back down. And landing's always the the hardest part of it. And um, depending on which way the winds are, if there's no winds or little wind, can make for a really fast landing or very, very slow landing. So high winds, you can come in at one, one mile an hour and just basically, you can almost sit down if you had to because there's no impact. I did not pay attention to that. I actually landed because I didn't have a windsock. I came downwind. So I landed at about probably 20 mile an hour running speed. So I slid a little bit of my feet, kind, kind of tweaked my ankle a little bit but I was able to stand up and not fall, which typically people end up breaking up, breaking their prop and parts of their cage on their first landing ever. So thankfully that didn't happen. And then after that, I was like, this is surreal. I literally just flew and landed all on my own being self-taught. No one taught me a damn thing. And it was the greatest experience ever right there. Looking back on it, right? Like if you were to recommend the way that you did it to other people is the way you did it for me as an outsider, I'm also a little bit older than you and I'm thinking of like my son doing something the way that you did it. And I'd be like, whoa, 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 let's, yeah. let's get some training and let's make sure we know what we're doing. Right. But is that the way that a lot of people kind of come into it is just like, look, you just got to go do it. A lot of people really don't ever even question the, uh, the self-taught thing. That's not even a question for them. They always are looking at a school or looking at somewhere where you can go do it. They, they can realize and understand that it's legal to do it without going to a school. But then they look at the price like I did. I was like, I'm not paying three grand for someone to teach you something that I could probably teach myself when I could just buy the gear. I'm like, all in, I'll be 20 grand. I'm like, this is with nice gear. This is like top line stuff. If you want to be all in with a good school, it's like 13 grand with good equipment. Um, but I would suggest an almost demand in a polite way that you go and get training or at least get some sort of get a lot of kiting experience if you can kite a wing you can fly a paramotor kiting is the hardest part so maneuvering the wing on the ground without the motor and just learning how to have ground control or wing control on the ground is the most important part of flying so all the best pilots are the best people to handle a wing on the ground you don't become a good pilot by flying well you become a good pilot by knowing how to kite correctly and kiting is basically steering it with the yeah Standing yeah. on the ground, focusing on the kite, bringing it up, doing twists with it, like making it, going out in really bad conditions on the ground so you know what it's like when the wing takes a collapse, how to reinflate it. I mean, there's a lot of simulation that you can't do on the ground that you'd have to kind of emulate in the air, but there's a lot of stuff you could do on the like 75, 80% of the stuff you do on the ground, you can do in the air though. Is it 
is it hard to do in the sense that like, look, this is physically demanding or like you've really got to be able to know like skill. Is it physically or skillfully demanding? Or is it like, look, once you get up there, it's just kind of having the balls to do it. So there's two parts to answer that question. And the way I would kind of answer it is there's a low wind and a no wind or a high wind and a no wind kind of day. So the sport becomes kind of difficult for people that are un athletically like if you have if you can't run very well or you can't run very fast a no wind day is the best flying weather you could possibly have but it also points out that it's the hardest way to take off because you're gonna have to run the absolute fastest you're gonna be running speeds of like 12 13 14 miles an hour and as someone that's a little bit older let's say 50 60 70 whatever the case we get a lot of people that get into the sport are 45 plus actually um, there's not a lot of young guys that actually do it a lot younger crowds starting to finally get into it but it's the cost factor a lot of people can't afford it at a young age um so Low wind days are, I think, in my eyes, the best flying days if you have a very large takeoff location. High wind days for someone that has little to no skill um, points the easiest takeoff you could possibly have. You bring that wing up, you take maybe 10 steps, and you're up in the air. Landing, super easy if you come to the wind. You, you pretty much don't even have to touch the toggles. If there's enough wind, you can just come right in, and it'll just stop. You need to pull a little brake, which kind of you know um, flares the back of the wing to slow you down, but... Um, I'd say someone with little to no skill with 30 minutes of kiting knowledge and has strapped a motor to the back and understands the fundamental of a throttle and, um, how to flare a wing, which like I said, 30 minutes would give you that you can probably land a wing and take off in like 10 to 15 mile an hour winds without a problem. So it's, you're going to have the fear factor. That's it. You're going to have the fear factor of not knowing what you're doing. Cause it's the unknown of never doing it. When most people learn, like if they go to a training school, right, do they do it tandem tandemly first? No, so you have point, a, are you just going up there by yourself? No, there's no typically there's never tandem. So tandem is kind of just to give you that that highlight reel or that that feeling of what it's going to be like. Um, you're not in full control, but they'll give you the controls and let you you know pilot it for a quick minute while while they're flying from behind you inside the inside the harness. Um, it gives you the experience of if you feel comfortable being up in the air, it's something you really want to do. Um, there is no tandem typically when you're doing a training course, though. I know how all the training courses work. Granted, I haven't been in one, but I know I've been to enough to watch. Yeah. And um, what they'll do is they'll have a radio system. As you're going to take off, they'll tell you everything. Hey, like pull brake, pull brake, or you know, add more power, full power, full power. They'll tell you to lean back. Like They're just commanding everything into your helmet while you're flying. You can hear it clear as day even with the loud motor. Great comm systems. And then same thing when you're going up in the air and you're doing maneuvers or whatever the case may be. They'll tell you, hey, pull this, pull that, like do this. And they'll, they'll direct you on the spot. It's a lot to take in quickly. So you have to put that um, the muscle to mind, muscle mind connection right there with what they're saying as quickly as possible can get overwhelming for some people if they're not able to, to, to translate that information as quickly as you need to. Um, but a lot of the time, if it's a tame conditions, you can take the information, move slowly with it, come in for the landing. They'll tell you, hey, couple steps ahead before you even have to do it. They'll give you five, 10 seconds. Be like, Hey, at this point in time, once you hit around this kind of amount of feet, you can see the ground. Don't flare, don't flare, don't flare. And you're like, cause when it coming for a landing, you're going to, you're going to get within five feet of the ground. You're not supposed to flare. Cause when you flare, you bleed off speed, which is a good feeling. Cause you're slowing down as you get closer to the ground. If you bleed off speed too soon, you're too high. Let's say you're 10 feet above the ground. You bleed off all your speed. You have no more flare authority, which means the wing has little to no wind actually coming through anymore. Cause you've slowed your ground speed down so much that's when you kind of drop right there at five foot mark from five foot to the ground is kind of like a big, um, a, a big drop. And that's, it's, it's knowing when to flare and how to flare. Flare is basically like flare is what controls. You have your left and your right brake toggle, which allows you to steer going left and right. 
And when you pull both of them down, it slows the back of the wing. So it pulls the back le- or the, the, the trailing edge down. Kind of like a plane. When you're coming in, you flare out to slow the wing down to, to come in. So that's kind of how that rolls. Um, but yeah, if you flare too early, you will pretty much drop depending on your height or you'll, you'll be on the ground perfectly with no damage because you're right above the ground where you're supposed to. Flail too late, you're going to come in with a lot of ground speed. You're going to end up foot dragging or if you're fast enough, you can run it out. If you're not fast enough, you're going to probably go to your ass or go to your face because you can't <laughs> you can't keep yourself from falling forward because it you can, you can come in pretty fast sometimes. Is it heavy? Right? Like I'm a mad... For anyone that weighs over 170, you're going to need a motor that with full fuel, it's like 80, 85 pounds. You can run 12 miles an hour with 85 pounds on your back? That sounds hard as hell. Well, you have a wing above your head that's taking a little bit of the load off, maybe 30, 40 pounds. Faster you keep going, the less load it takes, and you also have a fan that's pushing you forward. That makes more sense. I was like, damn, man. (laughs) Yeah, the fan's going to accelerate you like crazy. Oh. So those fans, right? Like how powerful are they? It's like a 30, it's a 30 horsepower two-stroke, 29.5 horsepower. They're 185 cc's. They create a lot of thrust, a lot of thrust. Like to the point where you can lay back and pretty much hold full power and it's going to keep you from falling backwards. Like once you get kind of, you know, way up there, what's it like? Yeah, most people don't really fly more than like 2,000 feet. There's just not a need for it. There's no care for it. There's not enjoyment for most people. Um, some people like to fly higher, five to 6,000 is really extent. You'll see anyone that's kind of high, like 90% of all the pilots will stay under 2,500, 3,000 at the, at the highest. Um, a lot of the, my favorite flying now is actually flying like two to three feet above the ground. That's like the most enjoyable because it feels as if you're going like the fastest. It requires more skill to keep yourself just above the ground. There's a lot more variables that play into it. Um, it's just more fun. I think the high flying has got an aspect of look at the view from up here. It's kind of wild. You can kill your motor once you get up super high and just glide back down. Like you just drop your motor, take off your helmet, just listen to everything. If the winds are low enough, it's just dead silence and just pure like bliss up there. You can listen to music, whatever the case may be. Um, but now high flying, I only did it once to kind of just set a standpoint record for flying the highest that anyone's ever flown. I just wanted to kind of do it. More or less, it was a, ch- a goal that I had when I found out about the sport. I'm like, how high can you fly? Okay, the legal limit's 18K. I'm going to 17.5. And that's where my glider lost efficiency. I, I physically couldn't climb any higher. I was trying for like five minutes after I hit that, and I couldn't climb anymore. Um, are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Yeah, go for it. Is this legal? Like, what do you have to do to be legal? Doing. So there's something called FAR 103, which is always a big question. It's an unregulated sport, but there's there's rules. There, it's un, there's unregulated, but there's still rules you have to follow. You can't fly any, over any person, places, or things, like no structure like of buildings that people are currently occupying. Or if you fly over a bridge, if there's cars coming across constantly, that's considered you're flying over people because there's people within the cars. There's, um, there's certain airspaces you can't fly in. So Class G is the general airspace that you pretty much can fly in because you don't require any comms or communication to towers or anything of that source. Class B, class A, class C are all off limits. Class D is you can go in there as long as you have communication. I believe you need ADSB out, which is a transponder that emits your beacon location to all other aircraft in the area to allow you to know where you're at, what altitude you're at, and what size you kind of are relative to everything else around you. Um, other things, basically the biggest thing is do not fly over people. That's, that's a huge staple point. Cause if something happens and you come down you land on someone, you hurt someone, whatever the case may be, um, water flying over the water is completely legal, very frowned upon in the community. Cause if you have an engine out, which you're flying with a two stroke dirt bike motor on your back, anything could possibly go wrong depending on how you take care of it. 
you land in the water, there's a lot of variables. So in paramotor worlds, flying over a large body of waters is very frowned upon, but not illegal. Is that basically just because, look, if you're flying over water and something happens, you're, it's over. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you have, fl I have flotation on both sides of my, my frame, but I mean, if you're out, like as far as I've gone out, when I flew into the Bermuda Triangle, I was 12 miles offshore and there was no one there with me. So if anything goes wrong or goes south out there, you're, you're pretty shit out of luck. Like you were definitely, you're asking for it. I mean, get, at least allow yourself to know what you're getting yourself into prior to going out that far, but just know the risk versus reward when you're doing something in this sport. Definitely. It's a huge risk versus reward sport. You, you don't have to like communicate with air traffic control or anything like that. Unless huh? you're in their airspace, which is class A, B, and C, you need to have communication. I guess I don't know how any of that works, right? I can imagine that if you get off anything flying, you got to like check in with control tower, come in for a landing, even if it's... You could take off from a park and just go wherever you pretty much want. As long as you look at the charts, there's a VFR. You can look up, it's, just, it's called Sky Vector. If you're anything of a pilot or anyone that's on there listening at anything of a pilot, you understand what I'm talking about. There'll be these little upside down wedding, king, uh, wedding cake rings that kind of like describe and show um, the airspaces you can get in certain areas. Like I'm at an airport right now, so I cannot fly anywhere within the first ring, which might be like a 10 mile radius of that. And then you go to the next ring, which might say, OK, you can fly from 2000 foot, which is still considered class A or G airspace all the way up to or all the way to the ground. So ground level to. 2,500 feet, I could legally fly. 2,501 2, feet all the way up to 10,000 is Class B airspace. So anything with control, blah, 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 you can't fly into that space. So it's all about staying in the right airspaces. Um, are you pretty much, but are you kind of a risk taker in other aspects of life, right? Or is this an aberration for you or like, look? No, I've been every extreme port, every extreme sport you've ever can imagine, like downhill mountain biking, extreme like snowboarding, like Alp stuff. Um, Free diving, so holding your breath, like holding my breath for five minutes, diving really, really deep. Um, I just like pushing my body as far as it can go in a healthy way. So it's kind of a natural extension, right? Like this is... Yeah, I love the thrill. I love calculated risk. Is it a calculated risk or at some point are you just got to be like, okay, I don't know exactly what's going to happen up here? Um, it depends on the sport. If we're referring to paramotoring, it's normally always a calculated risk. You always choose to go up in whatever weather there could be up there. Like in Utah, this is my first time going out west and flying with serious like wind shear coming off mountains, which is super gnarly, I found out. I was flying with a pilot who's 22 years old, but he's been flying since he's 12, and he's got over 2,000 hours of experience. I only have like 55 hours of flying, 60 hours of flying. So I'm fairly new to the sport, but like I've been a lot of places and done a lot of crazy flights so it puts me a little bit above the people that have been flying for two three hundred hours that are just flying over farm fields and that's it in really right, good conditions yeah. so i put myself in conditions where if something does can or tend to happen to go wrong in the weather that i'm flying in i know how to handle it so i, I work my way up incrementally i fly in not bad weather to what i would consider bad weather is but unsafe weather for some people that are very paranoid about having a collapse or anything like that i've had a couple collapses and i knew how to counter for them and it's if you don't experience it, how do you know what to do when it does come? Like, like how do you know to avoid it? Because you can save yourself from it, but if you've never trained for it and you go up and the conditions become bad and you scare yourself or you don't know how to react, I always say put yourself through a bad experience once or twice. That It's not close to death, but just close to like something that could have possibly gone a little wrong that could have injured you a little bit so you know what to do in the moment. Like When something bad's about to happen, I'm very calm, cool, collective. I don't freak out. I don't really get nervous. My adrenaline kicks in, but like in a calculated way, like, okay, here's the steps I need to do as quickly as possible 
to like logically act on what's going on. Like, here's the weather. Here's what I have. Here's what, how much time I have before I hit the ground, blah, blah, blah. Let's figure it out. And let's go right here. Let's try this. You have three. Basically, I give myself a list of three things I can try. And if that doesn't work by the second thing, the third thing is guaranteed to work. But and I never make it past not working with the first option that I typically go after. So so a collapse is what? Like that's when the kite? Like the front edge of the wing. So you have a glider. The front edge of the wing folds down in front of you. Like highest you have ever flown and what was that like that was insane that was most that was the most expa- insane thing in my 27 years of life i've ever experienced um granted it was actually completely legal um lack of oxygen up there i had a sparrow two thing i never ended up having to use but i looked at my like blood o2 and it was like 62 percent which is extremely low for your body but when i free dive i'm able to monitor that stuff all the time and i've been as low as like 38 40 close to like a blackout and I know what it's like and I know how my body reacts. So like going up that high, everyone, there was like 40,000 comments on that video and everyone was asking like, Oh, how did you breathe up there? I thought it was impossible to breathe above 10,000 feet. And a lot of the aircraft laws say that anything above 10,000 feet, you have to have oxygen paramotor. There is no oxygen rule. There's no anything of that sort. Um, but in terms of not talking about laws and just pure experience, it was the most surreal feeling thing in the world. I mean, I've, everyone's been up in a plane and looked out a window at high, but like you're in a cabin with people next to you with a seat in front of you and a seatbelt over your lap and you're cozy, comfortable. It was like four degrees up there, freezing cold, completely dry. Um, and just views I couldn't really explain from an aircraft. I've been up high in like private aviation too. It's just, you're so contained in a box versus I can literally shut off a motor, take off my helmet and I'm just out in the most like the most beautiful environment I've ever been in. Like I wish I was in a mountainy range when I went up that high instead of being like in the Midwest over flat farmland. But at the same time, it was still something to be appreciated being up above all these clouds. And, um, the sun was just perfect that day. There was no really haze with it or anything of that sort. It was just, it was amazing, man. That was that, that was the, probably my favorite flight I've ever been on a flight. I would like to repeat, but with a little bit more technology, like having a transponder so people could see my location. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the most wild experience ever. And I've done a lot of crazy shit in my life. And that was, was, it was relaxing. It was easy. Actually said that it was actually very easy to do. You just hold the throttle and you go all the way up, but it's, there's a lot of risk involved if you don't know what the hell you're doing. Cause the winds change every thousand feet or every 500 feet, the winds change direction, change speed, change, um, gusting speed. Like you could be flying at a thousand feet, go up to 2000 feet from 10 miles an hour. The winds can go up to 35 and you can be going and your glider can only fly like 40 to 45 at the top. So if you're in winds that are 45, 60 miles an hour, you're going backwards as you're trying to fly forward. So the wind's coming this way and you're trying to go this way, but it's literally moving you back 10 miles an hour because your ground speed can only be 45 with the setup you have. So knowing where you took off from, finding your location, all that kind of stuff, there's a lot that plays into it. So there's a lot of people like, oh, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go buy a setup, go do this. I'm like, if you guys want a death wish without knowing what you're doing, this is exactly how to get it. So don't do something without at least knowing the coherent risks that are involved with it. That's the thing that I would actually wonder about is like, how do you remember where you took off from? Dude, I mean, I, I took off in a massive, massive subdivision. So like I, I could see the outline of what the houses look like at like a thousand feet. I'm like, oh, that's not going to be hard to forget. You look at the lake too. There was a massive lake. And I'm like, okay, relative to the lake, it was east by like two miles. And I just looked to the right. You could see everything for like 30, 40 miles. So you could see everything by just two in a big 360, just turning around. It was super easy to find. Everyone's wondering like, how'd you find your spot? I'm like, that was literally the easiest part of the entire flight. But have you ever gotten lost and like taken off and like, oh crap, I have no yeah, idea where yeah. I'm supposed to land again. 
it happened to me twice when I ran out of fuel one time. The other time I just couldn't find the actual location. Um, so I ran out of fuel driving down Longboat Key over here. And um, I had to land. And I'm like, shoot, where is my car relative to where I'm landing now? Because I definitely didn't take off from here. So then I had to like map it out, look at the maps, walk back to my car like a mile and a half, grab my car, bring it back over, grab my gear, and then load it all up. But that was the only time I couldn't make it. It's because I couldn't make it back to my car, but I knew where my car was. I didn't know where it was after I landed, though, because I oh. didn't land. Yeah, that's but it's right. Not hard. It's not hard to lose your car, but if you're not paying attention and you're focused on other things, and it can be. Do you do you do any kind of training for it specifically? Yeah, I, I'm I'm starting to implement after going out to Utah and you know going flying with my buddy Trevor out there. I've been I'm going to be doing a lot more kiting now. So like just on a day where it's cloudy out, I'm not going to get sunburnt to crap and there's a lot of wind. I'm going to go out, take the wing out and just get more fundamentals and try new maneuvers on the ground and figure it out and just prolong and prolong myself in the sport by kiting more. Cause the more kiting you do, the safer you become and the better pilot you become. Like I stated earlier, what's harder take off or landing. Hmm, it depends on where you're taking. If you have a bit, okay, let's just say you have a big area for doing both of those. Um, low wind, they're both going to suck. No wind, they're really both going to suck depending on how good of a pilot you are. 10 mile an hour wind, they're both going to be very easy. 20 mile an hour wind, a baby can do it. I mean, jokingly, but yeah, someone young can do it. I think the youngest paramotor pilot is like 12 years old or 13 years old right now. You know, looking around, and I, I would say I've asked this question to other people who kind of do YouTube things and things like that, other kind of extreme sports, and I wanted to see what, you're, what you thought about it, was that, you know, it seems like a lot of things on YouTube, it's getting pushed and pushed and pushed more dangerous, mm -hmm. more kind of pushing. Is this legal or not legal? Yeah. Do you think, is, is there any concern in your mind or worry in the community that like, look, somebody's going to take this too far for the clicks, basically? I've taken it farther than most people have done in the sport. There's a lot of people in the sport that they just fly leisurely and fun. There's like 10 really mainstream YouTubers that kind of do this. There's like three of like me, Tucker, and probably this guy named theo i believe he's from france he's the world's best paragliding pilot which by by trade makes him the world's best pilot overall for paramotoring paragliding like he's the most insane dude i've ever seen anything of he's the most talented pilot in the world um he's like 28 um but the adver adherent risks that people take while flying um are are getting getting worse and worse as as things progress i think depends on the risk that the, the videos that they want to make so yeah man i mean it's all about what the the creative ideas that you want to go head out and you know the next clickbait title that you actually have to perform within the video like if you're gonna make a clickbait title you better make the video like stellar like like when i did the 17,500 foot everyone thought it was clickbait and everyone commented like probably a thousand comments were like well thank god this wasn't clickbait and i'm like well yeah now i'm gonna go up and do exactly what i said like if my engine died in the middle of the ocean, like I'm landing and I'm there in the middle of the ocean, like you're going to watch me stranded with the GoPro pole, like literally swimming back to mainland. Like it's going to be a gnarly adventure. Why isn't it more popular? At cost. Simply put, cost. It's pretty expensive. I'm going to spend 20 grand, 15 grand to go do this sport. They want to do it. And I think people are just scared of it too. 60% steer, 40% cost. U.S. is not a popular sport. Everywhere else in the world is popular. That kind of leads into another couple other questions. Best place in the United States to do it? Best place in the world? 
United States, somewhere out west, mountains. The most dangerous, but out west, mountains for sure. Best place in the world, I'd probably have to say. I, mean, I haven't been around the world, but I'm assuming like Switzerland would probably be the best place for anything related to air acrobatics. It depends on what you want to see from the air. It depends on what you want to see from the air. It's all up to you. I used to see some people, I'm, I'm from Kansas, and I used to see some people doing it in Kansas, and I'd be like, that looks awesome, but also, what's the point? Yeah, what are you looking at? Michigan was boring. What do I look at? Farm fields. Right? Mountains and stuff like that. What was the Bermuda Triangle like? I always imagined like getting sucked into stuff out there in the Bermuda Triangle. That that was that was weird. That was just I mean, I don't I don't I don't have like thoughts of like, oh I'm gonna get killed or no service, whatever. I just went out there. There was nothing around me but ocean for I don't know, the close I think I had to fly five miles back before I can even see land. Um so now it's just water, three sixty. Nothing. Just pure emptiness a couple fishing boats here and there but that was it most dangerous like what's the closest call you'd say that you've had i crashed into a fence i crashed into a like fence a, like what kind of fence like a wooden fence but i i, I ran i didn't give myself enough to, or the winds were too strong that or too light that day there was no winds and i normally gave myself about 100 yards to take off not I, I gave myself 50 yards and i needed probably 100 that day and i tried to jump over it last second i cleared it hit the right corner of my foot messed with my foot for like a good two months but i I wrecked my paramotor and my wing got stuck in the tree. So that was, there's a video on that out there, but yeah, it was, it was a bad crash. It messed me up. Thankfully I was athletic enough to jump over the fence. If not, I would be broken ribs, probably maybe a broken femur, like some bad shit could have happened. Yeah. Right there. That fence was solid. That's pretty much all the questions we got, man. Anything we think we missed or what's kind of coming up next for you? Um, so I'll let them know, I guess, uh, my two biggest things and I'll leave it at that is I'm going to be flying from Miami to the Bahamas. So it'll be the largest open water crossing ever done on a paramotor in history. Um, and then I'll probably be doing Key West to Cuba. So it'll be the first person to ever fly from oh, wow. one country to another. I want to thank Chucky so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media sites. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description, his YouTube channel is fascinating. You really get the perspective of why I think that paramotoring is is such a is, is something that people who do it are so passionate about it. It it just looks it looks like you're so free when you're up there. Okay. Now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. Do you think that you take enough, too many, or not enough risks in life? You know, the older I get, it's probably not enough. Mm. I don't think that I've taken enough risks in life, personally. I think that I've taken calculated risks, but in reality, probably should have pushed it a little bit more than I have. I would say that there's still a lot of risky things left that I want to do before I hang up my boots. Did you say hang up your boots? Yeah, you know, right off into the sunset. Do you watch? I just don't feel like that's not, that's out, you're out of your element with that, right? Like you don't, do you even have a pair of, have you ever had a pair of cowboy boots? Wasn't even thinking about being a cowboy. Just thinking about being a professional wrestler. Mm. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That makes a lot more sense from the boots thing. Yeah. Do you have a, can you think of a risk in your life that like, ooh, I should have done that and I didn't do it? I'm not saying necessarily a risky activity, but like, you know what? I should have turned down this job and hoped for something better, or I should have done this. I got an opportunity to work at the Golf Channel and I turned it down. And I always wonder if I would have gone there 
uh, what what would have come, you know, because obviously I'm into sports. It was a pretty fun, good gig. Uh, you know, that's one of those. Yeah, should I have taken the risk? I don't know. Came back to Detroit. Things are working out, you know, brought my wife with me. But do you think that that was the right decision to not take that risk? Or did you just adjust to the circumstances of your life? Um, usually I kind of go for it, man. I don't have a whole lot of things in my life where I look back and I go, you know, I, I should have turned left instead of going right kind of thing. I generally pretty much go for it, but I've never really, like, risked it all, gone for it. <laughs> like, bet it all, I've got no money left in the bank. I've always bet it all with what I'm comfortable losing, but never really pushed it. You, you know, one thing I've never done on an airplane, I've never had a drink on an airplane. I've never had a drink on an airplane either, actually, now that I think about it. I'm always impressed by the people in the airport. Not not impressed. I'm not impressed. But I'm always wondering what's going on to people who are drinking in the airport bar at like 8 a.m. And not like a Bloody <laughs> Mary or something acceptable. Like, you're having hard whiskey at 8 a.m. <laughs> on a Wednesday? Well, I mean... So, I like, mean, whoa. Some people have serious anxiety about flying. I mean, uh, that would be the... One of the only reasons I think you'd be doing that at 8 a.m. Uh, on a Wednesday morning. But ha- have you ever flown private? No. I've never really done anything luxurious in my life. Not Nothing ever like, ooh, luxurious. Like stayed at a really nice place, bought a really nice thing, done a really luxurious vacation package. I've never done that. Even relative to the income that I make, Right. Yeah, I mean, we, we did uh, sandals in Grenada on our honeymoon, which it was really nice. I don't know how fancy that is, but uh, uh, we had a butler, which was actually pretty awesome. Yeah, but he he would sing, so he was... Oh, he's a singing know, butler. That kind of cheapens... He was. That actually cheapens it a little bit. I'm, I'm not as impressed of a butler when it's a singing butler. More of a novelty act than a luxurious act at that point for me. Sorry. I, I felt a little guilty, actually, like having a butler... You know, because I had never been, I never had one before. But uh, all right, that was fascinating. <laughs> it, I mean, I'm trying to think of anything else I've done luxurious. I had the chance to drive a Lamborghini, but I, you know, didn't didn't do that because I, I'm a douchebag. But other than that, yeah, I don't. Never driven a luxurious car. I've never stayed at a five star hotel. Yeah, yeah, I've never done any of that stuff. I don't have much of a desire to do it, honestly, either. Coming from the guy who's wearing the same T-shirt he wore on episode six. I do wear a lot of the same T-shirts. I've found myself in kind of a rut. <laughs> I wear the same five T-shirts. But I've mixed them up, right? My Monday T-shirt's no longer my uh, Monday T-shirt. I'm switching it up a little bit. I moved it to Wednesday. <laughs> uh, how often do you – so you say you wear your Monday T-shirt on Monday. Do you wash it or do you like maybe give it a, you know, like a week? Like do you go every other week? No, I wash it every time. I Because I don't have a sense of smell and I'm very sensitive about things potentially smelling and I don't know if they're going to smell or not, I will wash something if I've even put it on. If it touches oh, my body, I'm going to wash excessive. it. It's a little bit, but you got to look, you got to stay disciplined because otherwise you don't know. Yeah. Right? You got <laughs> You got to stay in it, man. You got to right? stay disciplined. You can't give out halfway through. If I touch something, it's going to get washed. <laughs> Put it on, take it right off. I'm still washing it. Like everything, socks, shirts, underwear. Yeah, anything. Even I'll even go. No, coat is probably the only thing that I'm gonna that I'll put on and take off. 
and wear for a decent amount of time and not immediately wash it. That's the only thing. I don't think I've ever washed a coat. Yeah. Well, people probably know. You've never washed. <laughs> it's actually a, a funny coat? story. I mean, like a like a winter jacket. No, I mean maybe a sweat jacket or or something like that. But an actual coat. No, I, I don't recall the last time I ever washed. a Do you coat. have a fancy one that you you're not supposed to wash, like some wool trench coat or something like that? Ish. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that I'm a uh, badass of the elements. But uh, a lot of times I don't even wear a coat, not even in the dead of winter. But yet your house has to be 70 degrees in the summer, right? Like don't say you're a badass of the element and then what is your temperature set at during the summer is 70 degrees. So why don't you go ahead and walk that one back? I have children, all right? What do you well, want Well, raise from them me? right. Raise them to be prepared for the world, not have to live in this divine paradise where everything has to be fucking fine for them all the time. I, if I had my way, my kids would sleep in the shed. Get used to that 90-degree temperature. Be like a sweat box out there. Make them tough at the beginning, not these little – you cut their food You cut their food for them? Yes. I cut my wife's food for her, for God's sakes. Do you, do you really? You really cut your I wife's do. food? I, I Yeah, she has this thing. She doesn't eat meat off of a bone, so I will uh, – But you're not – wait. Will, uh, do you cut it? At the kitchen? Do you cut it in the kitchen, or are you cutting it, like, at the dinner table? She's sitting right there, and you're cutting her food for her. I mean, if we're out at a restaurant, I'll cut it up for her, like, at the restaurant. If uh, Obviously, when we're home, I'll cut it before I put it on her plate. Man. Yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a good husband. You're something, right? <laughs> I don't know how I, I would mean, feel she, if I looked over and I saw... A husband cutting his wife's food. I'm asking some questions. I'm pointing <laughs> it out to my wife and being like, what's going on over there? I mean, it's, you know, I, my wife will actually tell you that's uh, how she knew I was uh, maybe the the one on our first date because uh, we were having conversations. We had just ordered dinner. She told me, she, you know, she obviously didn't like that. Dinner came, took the plate right from her and just cut it up for her and handed it back to her. Didn't even know her at the time. Just, uh, you know, everyone has their things. I mean, that's, you know, that's her thing. I, it is what it is. Could be, could be a lot worse. What's your pet name for her again? Isn't it like Schnookums? I, I care not to Come say. Come on. Just remind me last time. You remind you and all the thousands of listeners? Just one more time. Uh, w- Wubba. <laughs> I'm going to take a drink of water. <laughs> the man loves his wife and some people may some people may call him a pussy but the man loves his wife what do you you love you love you i mean you love your wubby you love your wubby what am i gonna say about it i found somebody that puts up with me i am not the easiest person to live with that is true uh, you gotta lock that down um you should be doing yeah. more, actually. You should be chewing the food uh, if you think about it. <laughs> like <laughs> pre-chew, my like husband pre-chews the food for. We are doing something on birds. You could do like the birds. Dear, okay. Are you ready for our shout-outs? Can we move hey, out of this? Hey, man, farts are like zebras, man. That was that was probably the best line that you ever delivered in your life about farts being it like was. zebras. It was good. It doesn't make any sense because zebras are all the same. 
right? You, what you said oh, was the, farts whoa. are like zebras. They're all different, but <laughs> yeah. zebras are actually all the I, same. So that's why it was like extra good because it was everybody knew exactly right. what you meant, but it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, like if if you don't know the context, you're like this guy's fucking dumb. Yeah. But if you if you know, you have to listen. Then I don't know what to tell. Okay. You. All right, uh, let's give some shout outs here. Some uh, shout outs. Uh, Nicole Graythorn, Shazad Ahmad, Kathy Corelli, Miles Brew, Tony Boyd, Steve Rivera, W. B. Stanton, Elise. Jeremy Ling and Yuri Descamps or Deschamps. Appreciate all of you. <laughs> Especially you, WB. Who's WB again? Um, I I don't really know who it is. I oh, just it was just oh, okay. To say okay, all right, all right. WB. Uh, all right, got a couple of uh... bangers for you. Okay. You can't even hear it. It gets edited like oh, you, you can't. can't. Oh, no. really? God. Damn it. John's trying to be like a DJ beatbox over here, and it just... Uh, <sighs> okay. I actually think... Listen, if there's one profession I think I could be really great at, it'd be a DJ. Okay. Are we going to... Like your calf muscles? Calves are great. I saw... Although, I have a rival now <laughs> walking around town. I saw my wife look Ooh. at his legs, and he was like... And I saw, I saw it, too, and I was like, oh, he might have better calves than me. They were definitely bigger. I don't know if they were as aesthetic as my calves, but they were bigger calves. And I was like, I got some competition around here. What do you do when you catch your wife looking at other men's calves? Well, actually, I pointed them out. And I was like, I think that guy has better calves than me. And she's like, they're bigger. I should have known. Yeah. I should have known that your wife probably didn't give a shit. And you were the one who was like, look, Don, look at his his calves. They're so amazing. Yeah, he had good calves, man. If somebody's good at something, I'm going to acknowledge it and be like, nice calves, bro. Nice dick. Oh, oh. (laughs) What if men just started complimenting each other and being like, nice dick, bro. (laughs) What if a straight man walked past you? Completely straight man with like a family and everything like that, and he's just like, "Hey man, nice dick." I mean, I I guess I I wouldn't care. I mean, it wouldn't bother me. I probably would be a little thrown off at first. Like, I wouldn't know how to respond. I'd be like, "Thanks." I would probably just get yeah. I just give him like the quick head nod and keep walking. Like, oh, thanks. I know what I would say. I'd be like, "I was born with it." (laughs) Uh, it. This is the second time this episode you've led into something that I, I want to talk about story-wise. Uh, this one's regarding dicks, of course. Uh, so at the NFL Combine, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's where college players go. They do a, a variety of drills. Oh, NFL teams this, are there. Where is this going to go? Et cetera, et cetera. So there was a def- defensive lineman, I think, from Mississippi State. And he, they're doing the 40-yard dash, and he's running, and his dick falls out of his shorts. So he crosses the finish line and then takes a dive onto the turf and, like, just fucking eats the turf. And you can see the pain in his face as he's, like, sliding on the turf to a stop. And then he obviously puts his hand, you know, and, and puts his dick oh, back. Oh, but in he his, fell on purpose back. to try to be able to fix his dick. Yeah. Yeah. That's a mistake. Uh, so that's yeah. – if, if I had – a big enough dick that it would fall out of my shorts while I was running. You let that thing just fly the flag, man. 
nobody's going to be laughing at you. Like, what are you going to do? Like, laugh at this guy? Like, <laughs> look at that Dude. tent. Dude. Damn. Right? Like, if the, you got something like that, show it off when it happens. The best part about it, so he, he goes up, the the official comes up to him, and he goes, my dick fell out. And the official's like, yeah, I don't care. You know, you get usually get one chance. So, like, his time had to stay, even though his dick was Why wouldn't they out. let him run again? Yeah, they, they for some reason, you usually get one shot. They usually just kind of move you along, oh. right? You do one drill, one drill, one drill. Well, I'm a fan now. I don't know if he was in the NFL, but, I mean, I got, you know. Yeah. Got to follow a guy whose dick falls out of his shorts while you he's running a 40-yard dash. Because he's got genetics at the very <laughs> least, right? All right. Well, I don't know how to even come close to that, but uh, uh, microwaving things. Are you an under-microwaver or an over-microwaver? I generally over-microwave something. I don't mind, I'm, but I'm pretty good about kind of budgeting in my over-microwaving and that I know I'm going to cook it a little bit too long. So, like, for example, I like to have sandwiches on Sunday evenings. That's what I'm going to be having today. And I know I need to cook it about a minute, but I'm going to cook it a minute 30 and then let it sit for a couple of minutes to cool down. So I'm not – I don't take something fresh out of the microwave and then go directly to eat it. So I'm going to overcook it on purpose a little bit. Okay. That's – I kind of want to ask you more about the sandwich you have every Sunday. Uh, is it the same kind of sandwich? Depends on what lunch meat's on sale at the grocery store. I'm Whatever's on okay. sale, right? And I'm not going to the deli counter. I'm going into, like, the fridge section and getting that shit. Oh, my God. Of course you are, because why, why would you? Pay money. Well, it's getting back to the microwave question. If you do under-microwave something, and it's hot on the edges, cold in the middle, do you put it back in, or do you just eat it? It's got to be pretty cold. Before I'm going to go ahead and put it back in there. I actually kind of enjoy that a little bit. Like the cool center. I don't mind it. Okay. I'm not going to say that I like it. I'm not going to say that I do it on purpose. But I don't mind the cool center in the microwave. How about you? I mean, I I eat it. I don't care if it's still frozen. I'll eat it. And it's... it's, doesn't like I. <laughs> there's many times where I've been eating something like that, and I, I think to myself, why don't you just get up and make it enjoyable? Like you're ruining your dinner or whatever because you're too lazy, or you're proving a point to the sandwich. I I have no idea, but yeah. Like how far away is your table from the microwave? Oh, I mean, let, listen. If you're... Anything I'm microwaving, I'm probably sitting on the couch, so it's probably 25 steps away. Yeah. If you have to go through a flight of stairs, then I can understand never going back to the microwave. Because I'm not going upstairs or downstairs for any reason. Yeah, I mean. Right? Like, once I've sat down, it's done. It's, that's what I'm, That's the decision that's been made. Give him a sandwich and his, uh, I don't know, whatever TV show you're watching, and it's, it's a night. Also time to point out that John says sandwich, like a sand wedge, like a golf Club and not sandwich. Sandwich. It's a sandwich. Uh, let me see. Uh, at any point in your life, if uh, someone was to take a black light over your bed, what's the worst thing they would find? Oh, well, probably poop. <laughs> yes, I was, I'm sure. I was that, hoping like, you I don't would think, say poop. <laughs> I don't think that I've ever like. I know that I've never pooped in my bed. But have I probably farted in the middle of the night and not not quite caught, like the dam didn't quite catch all the water? Yeah, that's probably happened. 
So oh, probably man. poop. I mean, listen, don't you? Or because of the fact that I have two children, like God knows what's on their hands. Don't you sleep naked too, or something? Yeah, I do. Yeah, they're, the dam's not catching all the water all the time. I guarantee it. No, it's not probably catching anything, and I guarantee there's been some poop particles that have been blasted out. <laughs> what's going to be found on your bed? There? Oh man, I mean everything. I mean you, you name it from. Uh, bodily fluids to poop to probably mold i don't know i mean i mean if you were to run a black light i mean especially when my you know in my younger days when i just didn't give a shit you know when i didn't have a woman to bother me about changing the bed sheets or things like that there was probably you probably could have called a hazmat on that thing i would i would think I have never understood how people go to bed without showering to me that's like the most disgusting thing in the world like, I do not understand that. And I, if my wife didn't shower before she went to bed, we probably wouldn't be married. But the idea of just getting in there with all of your day's filth is so disgusting to me. I also generally, like, anytime they have those black light shows or anything like that, I don't want to know. <laughs> if, like, life is messy, I don't want to know about it. I don't care. It, like, it makes no difference. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to do it to myself. I mean, if you know, if someone was to come up to me and say, "Hey, let's do it to Nick," I'd say, "Okay, great, I'll take a look." But you know, there's probably yeah, a lot of blood on know. mine too, like throughout the years. Probably a lot of you know, probably find a lot of blood particles and things. Just you know, from I don't even want to. Yeah, know. never mind. I don't even want to know. Let's, let's just move on. Let's just probably move some on. pudding in there. All right, and other things. Anyways, this tastes mostly crackers and food <laughs> is probably what people would. This find. tastes funny. All right. Do you have a Do you have a thing, or are we going straight into our top? Let's five? Let's go straight into the. Let's fly. Let's fly into this top five. <laughs> All right. So our top five is top five fictional birds. What's your number five? Uh, Tweety, Tweety Bird. I thought a lot about this, and I think that Tweety Bird and some of the other popular birds mm-hmm. no longer really resonate today. Like Tweety Bird is one of those, Woodstock is one of those, mm. where they're kind of popular, and an older generation would say like, oh yeah, they were big. And now, I don't think they cut it anymore, man. I think, I understand Tweety, but... my my One of my points for having Tweety on, and on the list is, I mean, she's a brand now, right? Like, she's she's had roller coasters named after... Oh, Tweety's a girl? Yeah, I'm pretty sure... A, I always thought Tweety was a like androgynous. I never really assumed a sex with Tweety Bird. Oh, let me see here. Now you now you have me wondering. Tweety's male. Oh. Well, uh, I take back everything I said then. Um, if you look at any of the pictures, it makes no sense. That's absolutely <laughs> doesn't like. They purposely like the designs, like the big long eyelashes. Yeah. I'm looking at the picture. That's why I know this. It's hmm. no, does not look like if you are drawing a man. Yeah, I've, and especially going back in that time, that kind of time when it was designed, that's not the kind of thing that they were thinking about. Not at all. Um, my number five is Toucan Sam. Okay, I mean, doesn't stick out to me as you know. At first, it doesn't stick out as being top five worthy, but then you think about it. And it's it's a it's 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 a very conservative, safe choice. I think it's easily the most famous bird-related spokesperson. Mm. 
Uh, there's not a more famous bird in commercials. Nah, there there's one, but I, I I don't know its name, and I it's the how many licks does it take to get the center of the Tootsie Pop the owl? Oh, I don't the owl, the wise old owl from Woo-hoo. the Tootsie Pop commercials, but Woo-hoo. I don't think that I don't think that's up there with Toucan Sam. Man, I'm sorry. Right, well, all right, what's your number four? Uh, Daisy Duck. What? No, no. All right. It's, With the other kind of birds, you're going to put Daisy Duck up there? Yeah, why, why not? I mean, it's... It's n- top 25, okay. <laughs> What's your name? I can't think of a single thing that Daisy Duck has ever been done besides being married to Donald Duck. It is, is it married to Donald Duck or Donald Duck's sister? I don't even really know. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's like Minnie to me. Uh, I mean, it, she she carries that level of of uh, uh fame and uh, stature uh you know she's been around forever people know who she is you know once again maybe maybe not the current generation but us uh the generations before us they know who daisy duck is and they know her importance hmm. i'm just gonna what's your number four i think my fox from harry potter the phoenix oh Okay. More, I understand what you're saying, but I think that as odd as it is to put Fox in the number four for this, for an older generation, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, I think that younger people have more of an idea of who Fox is than Daisy Duck. Mm. I mean, it's, that's tough. I mean, I, I would agree with you because I'm sure more people cumulatively have seen and know Harry Potter, but that that's a tough one, man. That's that's a tough one. Yeah, I think it's a generational thing. What's your number three? Uh, Zazu from The Lion King. Oh, from Aladdin. Uh, no, Zazu's Wait. from The Lion King. It's the I get him confused with the one from the Aladdin. Isn't that Jaf- is that Jafar Rodrigo? I think it's Rodrigo or something to those lines. Okay. I would I could put all of the Disney related birds at number three, from the Aladdin bird to the Lion King bird, Archimedes the Sword in the Stone bird. Okay, wow, you're going deep there. Yeah, I would put all Disney related birds at number three. I think we just named most of them. <laughs> I think there's another one from like Rio or something. All oh, animated and Disney birds are at number three for me. Okay, was that? I feel like that was a on the fly uh, decision, but well, my actual number three is Robin. I don't from what uh, Batman and Robin. Oh, <laughs> does Robin? Does he count as a bird? Does... It's a bird themed character. I... Well, uh, I'm I'm actually spe- speechless. I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, How do you feel about right? Like you feel at the same time it's ridiculous, but you can't quite argue it as much as you would like to, right? Like it's one of those things mm-hmm. where you can't. You don't really have an argument. You're just like you're stupid, and then leave. <laughs> I, like, well, you're stupid. I'm glad you went with Disney birds as number three. Uh, my, I'm still going with Robin as my number three. No, that's hmm. uh, my number two is uh, Big Bird. Do you gonna depend on what your number one is? 
Oh, I know what your number one is. I bet you and I just have them reversed. My number two is Donald Duck. That's my number one is Donald Duck. I think I think Big Bird is probably number one though, because here's my reason. I have Big Bird as my number one. I think Big Bird is more popular than Donald Duck because Donald Duck has not really transferred generations as much as Big Bird has. Big Bird has always been Big Bird, but Donald Donald Duck comes and goes in popularity, I think. Yeah, but I, I think that is kind of the reason. I think that's a reason to me why Donald Duck is number one. Neither of us can say Donald Duck, by the way, uh, over Big Bird because Big Bird is tough. Big Bird, yes, has been is a staple, and but Donald Duck has been around for way longer and can come in, come and go, you know, come and go, cartoons, whatever else. Big Bird, you know, Sesame Street folds. Can Big Bird have an offshoot? Can Big Bird the the bird carry himself on a show by himself? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he can. I think that if you showed people a picture of Big Bird and Donald Duck, I think more people know who Big Bird is than Donald Duck. <sighs> I'm going to agree to disagree with you on that one. I know that if I showed my children at least a picture of Donald Duck and Big Bird, they know who Big Bird is. They don't know who Donald Duck is. My kids can't read or even point out pictures, so. Okay, what's in your honorable mention? <laughs> uh, I I have a Petey Bird. Remember that from Dumb, Dumb and Dumber, Petey Bird? Oh, oh that's, Petey. Yeah, that's a good Petey, Petey Bird. <laughs> Not anywhere near an honorable mention, but it is a good thing to bring up. Like That would be like number 95 out of 100. <laughs> I really just wanted to bring it up. Oh, Petey. Uh, Woodstock, obviously. Uh, I do have the owl, you know, the one. Hedgewig. Two. Uh, I have Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, I agree. I would put that on honorable mention. And then I, I don't even. Uh, I only put I, I put Woody Woodpecker on the list only because uh, there's like Cedar Point has a whole section devoted to this woodpecker uh, and Foghorn Leghorn. Foghorn Leghorn, I agree with Woody Woodpecker. Yeah, the one that we probably left off of there is Roadrunner. From Wiley Coyote, like the Roadrunner is a pretty famous bird, but I don't know if they still if it's still around. Any of the any of the Ducktales people, Scrooge McDuck, Huey Dewey, Louie. Well, those are all pretty good. I also put on here the birds from the movie, The Birds. No, um, no. Uh, it's like they're all birds, bro. Put, <laughs> yeah, but you know. Uh, but I also put on here. Um, I don't know what I was getting at. I think I meant to put Pokemon birds, but instead it, it put down Perkymon breakfast. But I'm pretty sure I meant to put Pokemon birds down, like Pidgey. Well, those wouldn't be birds. Those would be Pokemon. But they're but they're birds. They are Pokemon, but they're, they're... a bird-type Pokemon, but yes. they're not birds. Oh, jeez. Right. Those are Pokemon. If, if, they're not birds. Listen, if, if you want to get that specific, then, then sure. Whatever. Right, I'm just saying, but they're not birds. They're Pokemon, right? It's a bird-type Pokemon, a ground-type Pokemon, a water Pokemon. But they're Pokemon first, right? So are the water Pokemon fish? I mean, Magikarp probably is. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance... 
leave us a rating or review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And don't forget about that super easy to remember voicemail number, 316-530-7719. The link is in the description. I hope to hear from you. Let us know what you think are some of the top five fictional birds, guests you want us to have, topics you think that we should discuss. Want to make want to make the show a lot more interactive. 